Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today on the podcast, we have Shah Shafiani. He is a filmmaker from Iran who is a PhD candidate in the School of Interdisciplinary Arts at OU. He recently did his thesis defense uh, for an MFA in film production, also from OU. And he is a brother in metal. So there's not really a whole lot else I can tell you about him that he can't tell you himself in this interview. So enjoy. So thanks for joining me, Shaw. Thanks for having me. Uh, real quick, how do you pronounce your full name? So in um, actual Farsi, my name is Shahriar Shafiani. So in English, I guess you would say like the full name would be Shariar. And okay. the last name is, I always tell people like, pronounce it how you would pronounce like an Italian mobster's name, like Shafiani. That's, that's <laughs> okay. the way, at least they can, they get it. So okay. that helps. Nice. All right. Because everyone calls you Shah, but it would be Shah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they only call me Shah because the, in the first time I was talking to the film division about whatever, I think it was the orientation day or something. The first day I was technically I went to school here. Uh, they were like, the first four letters of your name seem really easy to pronounce. Can we just call you that? I was like, sure. Okay. And then they said Shah. I was like, okay. Is it something where like when you're in trouble with your wife, she calls you by your full name? I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think. When I'm Not to call Sarah out right now, but it's, I think yeah, that'd be really I'm funny. trying to think actually what I'm trying to Shire! think. Shire! <laughs> Pretty much. That sounded really familiar, so I have to say yes. <laughs> but the thing is, like in Farsi, the way you pronounce it in Farsi, the way that these syllables work, it's actually, it's not that long of a name in Farsi. So they would say in in passing, if you're just talking to someone, they would call me Shariar, which is... It sounds like two syllables. Yeah, pretty much. Quick, it's okay. it's pretty quick. And then that 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 sound in the middle, that's um, in spoken Farsi. Usually, just don't pronounce that. Okay. So you just jump over. So it's pretty much like in in Farsi, what they call me sounds like Shah or something like that. In but here, I mean Shah works. It's cool. Anyway, okay. Yeah. So what part of Iran are you from? So I was born in a city called Ahvaz, which is the capital of a province called Khuzestan, which is one, it's an, it's an important province in Iranian history because uh, it was the, um, Iran and Iraq had a war 30 something years ago, lasted for eight years, and it was because of this province because all the oil is in there and, and it, was, it was an important strategic area. So I was born there pretty much the last year of the war. So yeah, I was born like one, like six months or something after I was born. Uh, you know, the war was over, and um, but I've been I've lived pretty much all my life in Tehran, which is the capital of the country, because like, we moved out of that of Khuzestan pretty early after the war, because it was I mean there was a war there, right? So yeah, moved to Tehran, and then I I mean from like all. All memories I have of elementary school and stuff pretty much start in Tehran. So. Okay, so I mean, you're pretty much from Tehran. Yeah, that's 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 what I would say. That's what I would say. Okay, so you're born somewhere else, ended up in Tehran. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things um, when I first met you is that I, I could tell that you had the smallest of accents, but you were wearing a Lamb of God shirt, and yes. so I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> where is this guy from? I can't quite tell and it was mm. it was great to learn that you were from from oh speaking of which yeah got something for you where is it where did i put it yeah oh nice 
This is a pick, by the way. I just uh, I went and saw Slayer and Lamb of God oh, wow. this summer, Thanks, and dude. Carrie awesome. King flicked a guitar pick, and I caught wow. it. Oh, it's what? That's a Carrie King. Look at the back. It's a Carrie King signature pick. Oh my god. And I, was, and I thought, like, okay, that's a cool little souvenir. I'm like, but I don't play guitar. Shaw actually plays guitar. He could probably appreciate this more than I could. Okay, I'm, th- th- dude, this is, you don't know how much this means to me. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to do, like, a social media thing about this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's, I mean, I've cool, also gotten awesome. this. this Thank new, you. Oh, absolutely, dude. I, uh, I saw on one, one thing on Instagram of you shredding the guitar, and then I was talking to Tom Hayes once, and he goes, if you like heavy music, Robert, you should really talk to Shaw because that man can shred. I'm talking heavy. <laughs> I mean, I listen to a lot of heavy music, I'd say, but I don't think I can shred as much as Tom Hayes thinks. So, have you always listened to the uh, the heavy stuff like Lamb of God and Slayer? And how did you how did you get into that? How did you get into it? That's a good question. So, when I was in, I, when I was in junior high, I think. We have like, I mean, when when I went to school back in Iran, it was like you had five years of elementary school, three years of junior high, and then four years of high school. Actually, three years of high school and then one year where you would like, it was like your pre-university preparation, whatever you had to do. And then you would enter college. So I was in junior high. I was like 14 or whatever, where I first got introduced to Lincoln Park, actually. I think that was like the first electric guitar driven thing that i heard and the reason i heard that was that satellites were uh, you know became a popular thing in iran so like we got like we got like mtv and stuff so it wasn't through music actually it was a music video that i saw i think it was their first album was like hybrid theory hybrid theory i think 2000 or 2001 something like that yeah i think it was 2000 yeah yeah it's like it's way back so I saw that and I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I didn't even know. I remember I was talking to one of my friends and I was like, I don't even know what those things are called. I didn't know what a, what an electric guitar was. I mean, the only guitar that I knew of was a classical guitar or a flamenco guitar or, you know, acoustic stuff, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I mean, I knew that was electric guitar. I didn't know what it was called. And it, you know, what, what do you think the name of that thing is? You know, and so it was, it was, for me, it was like, it was an absolute pure discovery i didn't know anything so after after linking park experience i mean i started listening to their music it was like in the beginning it was like for like maybe six months or whatever it was just about this is energetic and cool and like unlike anything else i've heard and like i wasn't into music before that like i i always knew i loved music but i wasn't like whatever i had access to didn't really satisfy me so that led into In Flames, that Swedish, you know, yeah. melodic death metal. Did you see that, that tin poster I had in the kitchen? Yeah. That's I did signed not. by In Flames. Dude, cool. We'll, we'll okay, take a that's, look at it later. <laughs> yeah, yeah we got to take a look. I'm, you know, staring at my pick while I'm doing this interview, by the way. So, um, so In so, Flames from Sweden. Yeah, so I got introduced to In Flames, and from then on, I, so I, I technically, like, I got introduced to enough different music to realize that this is a whole world of music this is not just like two bands it was literally for me it was a discovery oh, there's there's a whole world of people who listen to this kind of music and who play this kind of music so i started getting into the whole swedish and norwegian metal thing so like you know start with the melodic stuff and then get into the heavier stuff you know um at the same not the same time like two years into it i think i was in high school like i was about to go into college, I got introduced to Slipknot, 
which was for me at the time was another different direction in terms of like your because because of the you know the lyrics like when you listen to Swedish stuff you are at least at the time when I was in high school I used to think that this is like this is about mythology this is about you know especially when you're a high school boy I mean what do you mm-hmm. think about this is like it's it's your kind of stuff but when I got introduced to Slipknot it was like oh this is like this is dark shit which I really loved I was like oh this is actually like um i mean now i know how to put it but i didn't at the time but for me it was like you know now it's this is more self expression than you know than the type of swedish stuff that i was at least in terms of you know lyrics and the content of the music Mm -hmm. so that kind of led me into the american scene i mean i got introduced to obviously like the the thrash guys big four and then work my way down history pretty much and i think it was 2007 when i two other important events in my heavy metal career one is yeah 2004 yeah it was 04 because that's when the um their thing or dvd came out i got introduced to opeth which was like some it, it pretty much prompted me to play music but up until that point i was like this is cool music i want to listen to it. but like after opeth i was like i just want to be in this world just never leave and never do anything else what was it about opeth that gave you that i mean opeth had like i did i i had a dvd i got a dvd from one of my friends so i just saw them live like i had i and i usually never do that i don't listen to a band live for the first time i usually listen to, to a couple of studio albums just to see how they want to present themselves and then you go to live stuff to see how they actually come off as a if they're any good or if yeah, it's all pretty, pro tools and <laughs> yeah exactly pretty much but for opeth it was, I, mean, I didn't know who the band was and i remember i went to uh to uh, someone who was like his name was Sohail. he was this like really awesome guitar player it was kind of my contact, my like my my guy in terms of like the illegal music, which was male music that I was getting from him. Because we, I mean, we were not supposed to get like you know, you can't get find heavy metal music like on the streets. Do so they have by. like import sanctions against like heavy music to make? Yeah, sure pretty much. I mean, like you, I mean, you, you don't get like CDs or DVDs or whatever. It's just like you. I mean, at the time, I, I have to say that like the uh, the epidemic of like peer to peer internet data download torrenting whatever i mean this is how we access stuff pretty much like what someone would like in russia or whatever would get a dvd like rip it put it online and then like two million people in like iran and dubai and like countries that didn't have or whatever areas that didn't have access to music directly they would just get it you know off of the internet so it was like i mean the copyright thing was really um it wasn't it wasn't kind of a concept that i got introduced to much later in my life when i started working professionally i mean we'll talk about that later but so uh opeth i mean the thing about opeth was this specific set that i'm talking about that it's that's in england it's after the the, the release of deliverance and damnation okay and um so they play both sets and then deliverance is this it this you know transformatively heavy just amazing music and and it's it's like it's so heavy it's unbelievable like to me and it, like the thing about Ockerfeld the way he writes music is that he takes his time he like takes you to a place that's like usually you know other sorts of music don't take you and he just keeps you there for a long time and especially if you're like if you're hungry for that kind of music which I mm-hmm. really was and if you're willing to take your time to actually get to that absolutely because I mean like 
a lot of the a lot of the Opeth that I really enjoy, he'll have really long stretches of nothing but clean vocals and like really calm, sort of soothing Absolutely. guitar melodies, and then he'll drop in with like just <clears throat> demonic yeah. growling, which is just terrifying. But I mean, if you're if you're along for the ride, it's amazing yeah, absolutely. Music. So I mean, honestly, the reason that I fell for the band was that so it, it was like a it was a, I think it was a two DVD box set or something like that. It was like two hours or two hours and a half, something like that. It was not a, like a uh, weirdly long show per se. But I remember after it was done, I felt like I mean they played their heavy deliverance stuff and they also went to Damnation, which is this really emotional, you know, kind of low gain. Um, low tempo. It's just it's a, it's a very atmospheric and emotional piece. Mm-hmm. The whole album. So after it was done, I was like, man, this is like this is pretty much all the types of music that I like in like one album. Even I mean, just think about how much more opportunities you can find just with this band. So I started like listening to pretty much whatever they had at the point. At that point, I think this was like a couple months into this discovery. They released. Um, Ghost Reveries, which is, I think, 2005. That was my introduction to Opeth. Yeah, so I was like, dude, I, I, I started with I started with Orchid, or I think that's the name of the first album, 95, mm-hmm. and just made my way to Blackwater Park, which today is one of my, I mean, I have to say it's number one, like my most, I just love that album. The way that album weaves together is so perfect it's amazing and beautiful like the, the crescendo that goes throughout the it's like slowly rising the entire album yeah. and then it when it hits it's just like <clears throat> it's really it's amazing and i was actually on spotify i was listening to him listen to Ackerfeld talk about what they went through because in my mind these guys were heroes i mean not only i was living in a world where that kind of music was not allowed the way they were doing it, what I mean, it was allowed anywhere else. Like it was anyone, technically anyone could do it, but no one did or no one could do it. That type of, you know, you need to have like, you need to have a really broad understanding of music to be able to write music like this. And like, as I got into this guy, as I like just focused on him, I, I got to know a million, you know, not a million, but like a, a, a huge number of artists that kind of like, you know, thought along the same line so it was kind of like striking gold like i found this guy and through this type of music i got introduced to, i mean this is funny like i actually got introduced to death through opeth i, okay. I actually I, I found out who who chuck was like after finding opeth and like uh, people that i listen to still today like steven wilson like i found out who mm-hmm. that guy was through um opeth pretty much and as I said, most importantly, prompted me to start playing playing guitars, taking it seriously, and I started taking it more seriously. And kind of like, I mean, I've never like thought of playing guitar as like um, as a, as a way of making money. Or I've I always had other plans. I mean, I mean, you know me, so you know what I'm talking about. Other stuff. But if I if I didn't have that music, if I didn't spend hours trying to learn a Kerry King riff or whatever I don't know who I would be I seriously like the, the, the amount of time that I like I mean what you think about like as this process is happening as you're this kind of music that that is in and of itself just you know revolutionary it's just like and you, you keep playing it you, you, you're in your head you're starting to, you start to figure out your life like where do you want to go what do you want to do stuff like that so f- for me it was 
like a friend, mm-hmm. you know. Well, very... Did you start with an acoustic guitar or did you start with an electric guitar? I actually did start with an acoustic guitar. I started like, so I went to like, I was like, I was in high school and uh, I mean, I was listening to metal music. I, I, I wasn't even thinking about, you know, playing it, but I wanted to play music. So I went to this um, music, I don't know what it was called. They had a funny word, like the, the translation to English was funny. I don't remember, whatever. There was this place, that there, there was this guy who was like a, a guitar teacher or instructor, as we call them. Okay. And the only thing he, he knew how to do was like to play like, we call it pop guitar music, which pretty much was like, he knew like 10 chords just to, which is cool, I guess. For, you only need three, right? Yeah, I mean, you need three. That's, <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> so he knew 10 chords. And then he like he had um, he also knew like five like classical songs like on the guitar, so he was like, "I mean, let's do this." And then I uh, my dad was like, "My dad has this really really old guitar that he he got like so." My dad had a story that like one day I went out and I bought a guitar I wanted to start playing. I went to class and the guy was like, "You have to grow your nails and come back in like a month or two weeks or whatever because it's classical music. You have to play using your." nails and uh, he never went back he just kept the guitar and he never went back and then like 40 years later or whatever i was like i want to play guitar so my dad was take this crappy old guitar that i have so i started playing using i mean the guitar wasn't great it was 40 something years old it was mm-hmm. never played it was like it was never touched like before i touched it pretty much did you have to restring it and everything yeah i had to, re- I had to restring it and like i didn't know how to do that so i had to go buy a set of strings and take it to the guy but the guy didn't know how to do it either so he had to take the guitar and the set of strings to someone else it was a it was a shit show man. that's funny because like in america it's like you can just go grab a guitar get it restrung it's no big deal but like yeah it, you had to actually go on like a journey it sounds yeah like, absolutely to, to i mean this kind of stuff out it was uh, it was interesting because it was like even trying like spending time and effort in in something in this vein for me was really interesting because like we are for us it's like um you um you figure out what you want to do in life in high school pretty much like you 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 choose a major in high school whether you want to do physics or math or whatever so like if you go with math and physics you know that in high school you're gonna do math and then in when you get to college you probably do some engineering stuff and then you either go to you know in more detail in a master's degree and then if you're really cool and if you really want to do it you go get a phd but you don't think about like i'm studying math and i want to do music that doesn't happen so you what, know? what did you study i studied math so for me that's oh, okay. what i'm saying like even going after a guitar and getting it restrung with this guy like we had to like get a cab and go you know even that kind of thing for me was like cool because i'm not doing i'm bored at high school i don't want to do like math all the time so are you good at math pretty good actually i was <laughs> i was i was good enough at math to survive a whole mechanical engineering degree just i mean spending the minimum amount of time just to pass my courses and whatever. But uh, I, would, I wouldn't consider myself a good mathematician or engineer. I'm pretty terrible, t- you know, compared to people who really do it. Okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, as just, I was good enough to, you know, not have to worry about it pretty much. So this guy, did it, he teach you a couple pop songs and then you just, you like, oh wait, that sounds a little bit like death or like opeth let me see if i can figure out the chords did you do that so exactly so i went to i, I started playing this classical piece and it was like next week come to class and like 
play the first three bars or whatever and then i went like the next time i went there i was like i didn't play any of the things you told me but i i can play the beginning of one now the, the metallica song. oh nice and then the guy was like what the fuck are you talking about who's one like he was like you know like this like kind of this mentality that like if you if you do exactly as i say you will be you know a master guitar player so after like a couple of weeks, I was like, well, I, I hate this. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. So I just, I, I gave the guitar back to my dad. I was like, just put this wherever you want. I'm not going to like classical music is not what I want to do. And I, so I was, uh, before going to college, I uh, realized that I want to play electric guitar. I like, I Google everything. I found out, okay, this is called bass guitar. This is like, this is whatever. Like I started to learn actually how a band works, like. What, what 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 it means to be a band? I didn't know. I just like okay, so these guys are just playing music together. So cool, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it was like I was totally unfamiliar with that concept, and um, I saved a lot. Of, I started to teach English at like English as second language, so I saved up some money because no one in my family liked me to buy a guitar, electric guitar, like these. Okay, because they were scared of the music, or they were scared that you'd get in trouble, or they wanted you to do mechanical engineering. Was I think it all it's, those it, things. I mean, pretty much all those things. I mean, my, my, I mean, all my family are. Everyone in my family is an engineer, pretty much, or like they're whatever they do is kind of related to this, this you know, the production side of labor. So um, it was just a natural, you know, path for me. I mean, you're, you're, and like the thing was like, I, my performance in high school was pretty okay so they didn't think like i think the I, I sometimes talk to my dad about this i think my dad freaked out a little because he thought that like from high school onwards he would think that i mean have a kid who's like quiet and stuff spends a lot of time in his room with his headphones on you know like he doesn't get into trouble much or whatever so like he probably just saw like this clear path for me, I would like get out of high school, go get a degree, you know, get married, like do whatever job. I mean, he would probably hook me up like with a really cool job as an engineer because he had his connections. So when I was like 18 or whatever, and I started like, like, uh, you know, painting my nails black and like play, like going after the electric guitar to listen to Slipknot all the time. He was like, what the fuck happened to this kid? Like, did, you ever, did you ever play Slipknot for him? <laughs> I did. That was not a good, that was not a, I remember like the, the, the first song that I ever played that my dad liked, that was like four years into my, you know, like four years after I started playing electric guitar and it was like, um, it was a Megadeth song and I'm trying to remember what it was. I'll remember. But it was a Megadeth song, and I, I hate Dave Mustaine. And I was like, my dad was like, that's a great song. And I was like, of course you're going to love the Dave Mustaine well, song, man. I mean, a lot of Dave Mustaine stuff starts with a classical style. Yeah. That, he incorporates that into his Yeah, so, so easy makes, access or whatever. That's funny. Yeah. That, ha that happened. I played, what did I play for my mom? I started, well, okay, for me, it was Linkin Park as well. So I was playing hybrid theory for her, and she was very calm and very understanding. And then went out and that Christmas bought me the Led Zeppelin complete recordings <laughs> and said, Robert, this is real heavy music nice. <laughs> to encourage me to like, OK. And that's when I got into like the blues and kind of learned the history of where that stuff came from. But I actually uh, went through her record collection a couple of years back and uh, she had a first like I have it in the other room. I, uh, first edition pressing of Black Sabbath's first album. <laughs> so I took that, awesome. um, which is just amazing. And, and she had a bunch of like Led Zeppelin and old stuff like cool. that. That's really great. I mean, I think, I mean, 
just thinking back at, at my life, like I think I was a little like kind of too unfamiliar with how how you know with the music industry pretty much because like my I was I, I wasn't in a you know I was I wasn't raised up in a situation where music was of any specific importance you know mm-hmm. like my parents love to read they still do to this day my dad has a huge like um we call library in farsi but technically it's just you know a room with bookshelves that that's still a library I don't know. I, I the thing is like this. I, I've had a lot of, as as an as an English as second language teacher. I've had a lot of problem with this. Like in um, with my students because like they're doing an interview with someone from the U.S. or whatever. Like I don't know. Like you're talking, you're skyping with your potential advisor in an MFA program or whatever, and then you tell them that like yeah, we have a library in our house, and then that guy's gonna think what. These are loaded. They have a library in their own house. Uh, okay, that that makes sense. Well, I mean, like my, my mom has a room in the house that's probably the size of the room we're in right now, and the walls are covered with bookshelves. Okay, and books, so I guess and we call it the library. Okay, so my dad has a library then. Okay, that's, so he has a lot of books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he doesn't own a library, but he yeah, has a he library just had... in the house. Okay, all right, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. So yeah, so I got. I mean, I got introduced like to books and reading and whatever. Especially like he had a lot of. Like um, that, that there was a period of time in like an Iranian in Iranian modern history, let's say, between like 10, 15 years before the revolution until like five, 10 years after revolution, maybe five years after revolution, that like a lot of different ideas, because I mean, it was a country going through the process of revolution, the, you know, the uh, intellectuals were really producing a lot of work. So like when you when you look at libraries like Iranian libraries that have survived from before revolution there's a lot of very interesting contrast you know like they have like communist books like they and at the same time they have like really like um kind of like sufi type like islamic philosophy it, it's it's really interesting like all of this like side by side all these books all these ideologies or concepts because the uh at the same it was it was pretty much published at a time where like the whole country was trying to figure out like this is not working out what do we want to do mm-hmm. so like so i had access to that like as a kid i read a lot of like i read a lot of Chekhov as a kid like as like a 10 year old which is not like i don't think that at i don't 10? really That's yeah interesting and, like i didn't understand i mean like i, I was like yeah cool it's like it puts a lot of like imagery in your head and a lot of atmosphere, but mm-hmm. you don't really get it. Like you, you don't get the point of it or you don't experience it the way you should do. Cause you don't have, I mean, with all those, I mean, like, I think this is really off topic, but like Russian literature, like you really have to have some life experience before you read it. Just, you know, or, or, or your, your understanding is at a level that isn't terribly mature. Like a lot of times, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was reading constantly when I was a kid, and I just read every book I could get my hands on mm. to the point where I ran out of books. So I started reading like the encyclopedia, just just like I just flip it and be like, oh, let me learn about this today, and I just I just read just for the hell of it. <laughs> That's cool. And then what what I've been doing lately mm. is actually going back and revisiting things that I read before I could understand it, which is really cool because now I'm going back and reading stuff. I'm like, oh, like that. Yeah. But even stuff I read when I was an undergrad. That I didn't have enough experience to truly understand. Now I'm coming back with a new perspective, and it means something different. So like the book hasn't changed, but I've changed, and it's cool to kind of sort of trace your uh, intellectual development. Absolutely, in that kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I think I do that with movies all the time. Like I, 
like part of my um, film watching process is always revisiting. I think that's how you learn. Like honestly, if you like the way Boyhood was made, if that if you consider the way Boyhood was made, the way you learn cinema, which is like every year you get a chunk of you know your knowledge locked in, the way that film was shot. If you if you watch one film like in the process of 10 12 18 years or whatever like every year every couple of years just look at it again and take notes and whatever it's it's amazing it's like you you kind of you can track what your how your perspective is changing as a, as a person and also as someone who's doing you know mm-hmm. film for for a living so you're you're playing guitar reading a lot of books you get your your major in engineering mm-hmm. and then so you you have what's the university system like in Iran? So you had an undergrad. Yeah. So did you, you study mechanical engineering? Pretty much. I mean, in Iran, it's like you are, um, you, you need to take an entrance. Like the, there's a nationwide entrance university entrance exam at like a very specific date and time, you know, this like four years in advance that like that day, that time I'm taking my university entrance exam. So after the high school, after you're done with high school, that's why, I mean, our system was, high school was uh, four years. So that four years, pretty much like an like how SATs work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing is this, uh, because the university system is centralized, you pretty much apply to the, the same place. Okay. And then they kind okay. of like, based on your score and based on the need that they have in different parts of the country, they, they you know place you where you're pretty best. much okay right, exactly that that's so like when you take it like for someone who was who lived in tehran i wanted to be in tehran like i wanted to I, I didn't want to have to like move to another city and pay for rent and stuff like that i wanted to like my family lived in tehran so it was cheaper and more convenient if i just got in university in tehran so in order to do that like because there are better universities in tehran you have to have a very high score or your placement in this ranking it was a ranking system literally from like number one to like 20 million something like that's like yeah so in that ranking system you had to get like seriously that's like that's what what were you ranked do you know i uh i mean there so in in my time there were two types of um two types of exam one was like the this the free we call them free universities which is pretty much like you get like 100 percent of your tuition covered by the university you don't pay anything okay those are really really hard to get into i got like five six thousand or whatever like i was like the six thousand sky pretty much i got into a couple of good schools in tehran and then the other thing the other uh, entrance exam was for universities that were like <clears throat> i don't remember what we called those well, you have to pay pretty much. You have to pay a tuition. It's okay. like a, it's not a private university, but it is, you have to, basically you have to co-pay. Like the university needs, you know, some investment from you. And uh, I got, I got into a couple of different programs and like, I think I got into this one, which was cool. It was, um, what was it? It was like uh philosophy and economics something like that and then the other my other option was this engineering program and then everyone in my family was like engineering is great and then i was like i don't really care but that other school this is literally how i thought i this is terrible like i should never tell this to my kid if i ever have one but i was like there these are two universities i i hate just studying both of these like i don't care 
the the one that was economics and uh, philosophy that wasn't a much better school so i was like if i go to the better school i have to work harder so fuck that i'm gonna go to the worst school and the, that the worst school was you should the never teach that to your children yeah and and i mean the, the thing is like it was really tough because like i knew i didn't want to do what i was about to do but there was i i couldn't see any other way not just because of the way i was brought up just that was the kind of this stagnant aura around the whole country that like you your job as a person is not to find your way in life is to find a way to cope with whatever the fuck the hand you're dealt so you're not doing what you want to do you're finding a way to deal with what you have to do yeah i mean pretty much is like i mean if you're go if you want to do like if you're smart enough to, to be good at math and physics and stuff you you pretty much have to figure out a way. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. It's actually worked out for a lot of my friends really well. I just needed something, uh, you know, uh, just couldn't see myself being happy that way. And it was it was a huge problem for me. Like, just thinking about, like, in 60 years, I'm going to be this and this and this. That's cool, but I'm not going to be happy about it. So I have to change it. Yeah. So did you know that you wanted to be a filmmaker at that point? I did not. Like when I entered, so at the time, like when I was taking the university entrance exam, there were two things in my life, girls and uh, music. And I wasn't pretty good at the girls thing. I just, they were just an important part of my life and they were missing. So I had to figure that out. So that and music. So like, I just wanted to pretty much get out of high school, just enter the real world and just live, you know, live a little, listen to my music and write. I really wanted to write. Like I didn't, I, I didn't think about film at all because... Film was always this unattainable dream that like, which is pretty much why I did it. I was like, I can't fuck this. Like, I can't just accept that something is just conceptually dreamlike and out of touch for me. Which part of the reason that I was like, okay, I have to do it. But uh, after I entered college, I I pretty much started taking care of the, the two things that I had. Like I started dating and whatever, which was... This was important to me because this is actually funny. Like for who, whoever comes from my country, this is interesting because like you are. I mean, there's sexual segregation in high school and like pretty much from like elementary school until like you get into college. So you don't go to school with girls. And, and you also were in your bedroom listening to Slipknot every day, so you didn't yeah. see any girls except your sisters, right? Yeah, pretty much. So I had like, I mean, so I had, I was lucky because I was, I had three sisters. One of them, my twin. So I had like, I. You're a twin. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a twin actually. So like, so for me, it wasn't just about like I need to talk. I need to learn how to talk to girls. That wasn't for me. It was like. I want to see like what love is, you know, I was really seriously, I was like, I was really into figuring out how human emotion works, what happens to you when you want to give up control and like, have someone for me, it was like, I was a, I still am a very, very private person, like my thought process and stuff. Even the stories that I tell people are regulated stories, like Mm -hmm. I'm, I know what I'm talking about in terms of like, what I'm how I'm looking at my own personal history. So for me, it was more like, how does emotion work? Like what happens to you when you give up control and kind of let someone else in? I was really interested in figuring that out. And I was listening to all this. And like, as I said, like to me, metal music is not angry music. Metal music is just very, very fucking emotional music. There's like, there, it, it's it's powerful and strong because it's emotional music. And like, at, I mean, they say like, 
art is either a revolution or plagiarism it's like i i think of I've never heard that yeah i i think of i think of mill music as as a revolution just like compare it to any other mode of music or any other type of whatever functions as music i think it's it's in nature just a revolutionary concept i'm obviously digressing and just going well no please th that's that's how i like doing things well the other thing too about metal is that it's in your face yeah if you choose to try to experience metal it is going to be visceral it is going to be direct it is not going to be always pretty I mean, you, you, you have a reaction, good or bad. You can't be indifferent to it. Yeah, You can absolutely. look at a painting and be like, eh, whatever. You can't really listen to metal or go to a metal show and go, eh, it's Dude, hard. I was, I remember like I was 2020 20 or whatever when I was watching this Slayer show, this like DVD box set or, or whatever. It was like, I think it was Kerry King who said that, uh, metal music is like serious business like you don't go you you never hear yourself in a conversation saying that like yeah for like three months i was really into slayer and like went to all their shows and stuff but now i listen to like taylor swift that never happens that like you either you know so and, and i was like yeah dude that's like that never happens like you you're you either just like you immediately get like this pushback like for, like from within yourself like fuck this music i don't like it or if you get hooked you're you're hooked like it's if you find out that you get aesthetic pleasure from listening to electric guitar and drums and bass, you are in it. Yeah. There's no way out. So did so so you start dating, you start like talking to girls, start trying to figure out so so you're a romantic. Would it be safe to say that? Absolutely. Okay. So you start meeting girls and was it a similar kind of discovery like when you discovered metal? Was it sort of like was it scarier? It was. I mean, discovering girls was So I mean, you have to think like in, in Discovering girls uh, for me was also just discovering just you, my own manhood. Because when you're as a straight guy who goes to high school with boys, you never you never get you, you never understand yourself that way. That like you know your your brain never tells you never you can never tell apart like what part of my attraction toward this lady is um, emotional and what part of it is just like my lizard brain going like. We gotta fuck something, you know. Right, what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that so that was I started to realize oh so these are different things you know like so so obviously like when you get when you get getting to know relationships means breaking up at the, you know so like the uh, you get to know the the sweetness of it you know also alongside the bitterness I guess and that's when you're like oh I made a good decision by choosing metal as you know as my life because when you break up also metal helps a lot it certainly does yeah so <laughs> so it, it was kind of like i always think about like in flames has a song has an album i think called soundtrack of my life or soundtrack to my life something like that and um i always thought of metal music as that like my like as i was discovering myself from like you know teenage whatever 15 16 up until like Pretty much the time that I got, I mean, I still listen to music every day, but like I'm talking about the discoveries mm -hmm. or the um, transformations that I had. There was always metal music playing in the background. Pretty much. Yeah. I don't remember what I was talking about. No, we're talking about how you got into filmmaking, how you decided you wanted to be a filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. This is interesting. So I got, so I got, into, I got into this um, program, mechanical engineering program, like... So first couple of semesters, first semester pretty much for me was just like getting, get to know how to operate in a society where you're not, you know, 
you're not just with your own kind. Now you're like, there are older people around you. There are girls around you. There are university professors. It's not like, it's not high school that you can just like ram the door and just be yourself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that was, I pretty much spent time uh, just learning about myself a little bit, listening to music. And then like, also we had a theater group that I, I didn't know anything about theater, but I was like, this is this is the kind of thing that is not, math and engineering and stuff so i'm gonna do it so i started doing that i it wasn't much fun it was like it was really uncomfortable people were really like people were not really um grasping the idea of like these are art forms it's not just play and games and stuff which was i mean like i I think they were right because they were like i mean we're engineers who gives a shit this is just like a pastime for us but Mm -hmm. for me it was like it's theater and they're like, dude, like, calm you, the fuck you, you down. You go in having read Chekhov, and all they've done is watch like High School Musical, right? Is that something? Yeah, like pretty that? much. That's that sounds accurate, I guess. And uh, I mean, I had so one other really interesting thing that happened to me was that I I actually got in like I started making friends, and these these guys were all nuts. Like they listened to like I had friends who listened to like like behemoth and like what to me was like cool because i i mean f- finding other metalheads even in like now wherever we are right now in athens is not easy i mean the reason we became friends so fast was that you this usually doesn't happen you don't really meet cool metalheads that much at least well, there's like a there's a spread you know there are metalheads who there, there are just as many dumb metalheads yeah absolutely dude metal that's, that's why i added the word cool in there cause. right cause, <laughs> and, and it's it, i think it's like that with any subculture really because you know but the thing is like if you have someone who is committed to a particular art form and then like metal just happens to be part of their life like it's a mm. common we speak a common language in that way so even if we like different types of filmmaking or have different styles of expression like we always come back to yeah absolutely metal, which is great absolutely so i guess so i mean I, i'm still really great friends with these guys and um i guess what they were interested in what was interesting to me was that they were interested in something more than just you know like your life has a very clear path in front of it just like go hit the you know checkpoints and you'll be fine these guys were also interested in just figuring out more about life about philosophy about music about film so that kind of gave me this footing to try to experiment you know listen Listen to more music. Listen to weird, weird type of types of music that I wasn't into, and especially watch more films, because then I had people to discuss this stuff with. You know what I mean? Like then we yes. can, oh, did you see this? Or like we, we could actually have like one more really, really important thing. If I want to make a film about this, I have to really consider this little detail. One of the other reasons that we like you had to find your group to be able to experience these kind of things, like music and film and just art, good art in general was that uh, it was pretty heavily regulated by the government. So like these, my, my friends, they were people who had access to good internet or who knew someone who had access to good internet. So they had this stuff. They had hard drives, like terabytes of pirated movies and music. Uh, so whoever had that hard drive was the guy who could, you know, introduce you to this, like, you it's know. Like the gatekeeper. Yeah, absolutely. knowledge. So, like, and, and in a sense, like, when you think about, like, a group of, like, six friends, like, each of us had one of those hard drives in, in something really specific. One guy was in, like, all the National Geographic documentaries. The other guy had metal music. The other guy had, like, porn. The other guy had, 
soccer matches. Seriously, like, I had a friend who had, like, I don't know, World Cup games from, like, 19-whatever, like, on a hard drive. And then, so... Be, based on what you needed, what kind of content you needed, you would like you would hang out with different guys, and then if if you're super best friends with a guy who happens to have like I don't know National Geographic stuff, you eventually are gonna take a look at them because what else are you gonna do? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a limited amount of content. That's crazy. So um, we take that for granted in the states. I'm like, yeah, I'm trying dude. to imagine because most of the music I got into and the films I watched was because I could go to a video store on the corner mm. or. Uh, some guy I skateboarded with had some Slayer CDs he would lend me or you're watching <laughs> a skate video and your your favorite skater had this music playing so you looked it up and then you went to Best Buy and was before <laughs> everything went digital but, it, but yeah like I mean and, and it wasn't I'd have to worry about getting in trouble and I could do yeah. it completely legally and it was I guess I mean I've seen like honestly I've, I've known a lot of metalheads in Iran who like who treat the music as like it's it's more than it's it's a lifestyle pretty much because like it, yeah. it comes with everything that I just said. I remember like in 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 high school, two of my best friends, the only thing we had in common was that we listened to metal music. No, we had nothing else in common, but we we were both friends with another guy whose brother was a metalhead. So like that guy was our connection. He didn't even know what he was doing, but like his brother, like every couple of weeks, would give him a CD or even a cassette tape, like or something to bring to school and there were these two guys me and my best friend who were like pretty much the recipient of this whatever content he sent us so we had to coordinate like you you pretty much experienced whatever you were experiencing with some other dude because like i would like today is saturday i'm gonna take the cd home and bring it to you tomorrow and then i would listen the fuck out of it that day and give it back to the guy because there was only one cd and there were two people who could listen to it right and then he would go through it i mean i pretty much experienced everything like this like there was always someone else like my twin sister or my best friend or my uh whatever even when i started making films there was always you know uh it was always this process of like let's Let's make it a discovery because there's no set, you know, predetermined way to do this in my country. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when you like when you want to when you want to listen to metal music or when you want to watch like Tarkovsky films in Iran, you can do it a ten, like ten different million ways. You know what I mean? Based on who you know and where you live, and because there's no regulated or um, defined way of doing it because that material is technically illegal. So we, you're doing this theater club as like for fun and yeah. you're not really feeling it because the other people aren't yeah. into the same kind of stuff so that made you want to seek out films and make you want to seek out things that were actually more fulfilling so yeah that, that made me one that made me want to just explore more i didn't know so i mean you have to you have to also think that at this point in my life i'm i'm i was introduced to music as we talked about so i i knew what kind of music i like i knew what i wanted to do with that but um, when, when I think about myself now, I'm a guy who's hungry for just in life. I'm just hungry for this, you know, uh, the process of human creation. What I just talked about, like, are these weather revolution or plagiarism? I want to live in that zone. I want to see who, you know, revolts and creates something new and who fails. That's my life. So when I started out, the only type of art that I knew anything of was music and nothing else. I mean, even music was very kind of very limited because it was only heavy metal music, not even like soft rock. I was like, fuck that shit. Just 
just, you know, Slipknot or whatever. So um, that was kind of my introduction to theater. I mean, it was a terrible introduction, but it was it was kind of like, you know, oh, this is so theater is you have to work. I mean, the only like at least I figured out in theater, you have to work with like 20 other people on a stage. So, you know what I mean? So that's yep. that was what I got from it. And uh, I think it was like I was 19 when um, my brother-in-law went to London or someplace in Europe for business or whatever. And then when he came back to the country, he had a DVD of 21 Grams. And I was wow. like, yeah, I was like, I don't know I mean, what it is, but it's a, it's a film and I, I, I love it. I love film and I, I mean, whatever, whatever it is, I just want to take a look at it because... Um, I don't remember the reason, but I was I was kind of done with the hard drive that I had full of films. And I was like, okay, something new. So I have to spend time on this. And I watched it and I was like, fuck, I want to be a filmmaker. Like literally, dude, seriously, like the film ended and like it was like an hour and a half or like it was it's actually not that long of film. It's like 100 minutes or something compared to like, you know, um, pieces that, I, that we know of now. And um, I've immediately after it was done just started re-watching it from the beginning because it was like to me it was like i didn't know you could do things like this in film i didn't know you could fuck up your story structure tell it backwards and people would still get it and i was like not only did i get it i was like i mean honestly when i think about it when i this is one of those films that i watch every year as i grow in this career I don't think it's that well done i mean like now when i think about it it's it's an amazing film it's a really great film but like the reasons for the writer and director to make it the way it is to to kind of mess with the structure to specifically deliver point i don't think that's like necessarily really kind of done well you know like i mean it, it works as a film and i think it's great but the thing that kind of like changed my perspective when i watched it for the first time was just the possibilities that like so it's just like opeth you're like whoa yeah I didn't know that dude was seriously possible. i was like i watched and i was like fuck this is i didn't know you could you could mess a film up like because that, that was the reason like part of the reason i was kind of jaded with film at that point was that um you can easily figure it out like you if you watch like four 70s hollywood films you get the three act structure like when you're watching the fifth one you're like yeah i mean this is what's going to happen so the story, like the plot necessarily didn't interest me that much. I was like, okay, so these are decisions made to deliver, to tell me the story. And that's awesome. That's great. But what 21 Grams did was that, dude, this is not just about the story. There are a shit ton of other things that you can mess with when you're making a film and that I didn't know anything about. So that was just an opportunity for me to just to, you know, start learning more about films. And it took me like more than two two and a half years to come to terms with the fact that i just want to leave everything else and be a filmmaker because um i was still going through the program the engineering program and stuff and i was still playing my music and i was kind of thinking that like i mean my parents are gonna throw me out if i'm like i'm still kind of like doing the minimum that i could do for this program i was also teaching english just to you know to earn some money and i was also playing electric guitar and like everyone in the neighborhood could hear me because I had an amp and whatever. So I was like, if I push this too much, my dad's going to just get the fuck out. You're not, you know, it's not working out. So um, it took me some time to to kind of 
muster up the courage to be like, fuck it, engineering, whatever, it's done. I mean, I want to change my life. I, I, it's not just about academic degrees or whatever. It's a decision. I, I'm, I'm making a decision on how I'm going to make money for the rest of my life. That was pretty much the decision that I had to come to, which happened to me when I was like 22. So it took me some years. So did you, you, did you get your engineering degree? I did. And then you applied to Ohio University? Uh, or did it take a little longer than that? Yeah, I mean, it took like, I got my, I got my degree in 2010, I okay. think. Yeah, I, actually, yeah. So I went to school in, in 05. And I mean, typically it takes you four years to be done in engineering. It took me five because the last year I just, I had one credit left, literally one lab credit left that I had to take to be done with the whole thing, I just didn't do it for like a year. And I was like, I was teaching, I was I was playing music, but I was also like um, experiencing life. I was like, that's the time that I went to the Big Four concert. Like I was I was kind of like just getting to know myself better a little bit. I, so for those who don't know, the Big Four are Metallica, yeah. Anthrax, Slayer, and Megadeth, Megadeth. The Big Four of Thrash. So you saw the Big Four show, I'm insanely jealous. It was yeah. It was an amazing experience, man. It was my first concert too. So it was, Are you it was my, my was first show, first, my oh first my fucking show. God, and that's a hell uh, of a first show. Yeah, it was awesome. It was. You want to talk about that now? Because that's that's an interesting. Yeah, sure. I had a couple of friends. I had a bunch of friends who had already gone to Turkey to Istanbul for a Metallica show, like a couple of years before the Big Four show, and um, so at this time I was. Um, I was playing guitar. I was like, we had a like a mini band kind of thing. We were writing music. I mean, we didn't have any kind of plans to record anything. I actually, I think I'd already recorded like a five minute piece that I have. That's like the only piece of music that I ever recorded. It's terrible quality, but it's, it's cool. A bunch of riffs that I had an idea for. And um, so one of these guys, one day comes to me and says that um, there's this show, Big Four, I'm gonna be in Istanbul. I was like, "What?" Like, I didn't. I seriously didn't think that I could go. I just thought that this is the kind of thing that I probably can't do because it's really cool. <laughs> seriously. So I was like, and I. So the guy was like, "Yeah, I mean, like, we in Iran. So you don't have you don't have access to the uh, the international banking system or whatever. So like, we couldn't wire money to anyone." So I was like, how the fuck is this going to work? And then he was like, we know, I have a friend who knows a guy in Turkey. So we, he's going to, that guy is going to travel to Iran. We're going to, by that time, we're going to, you know, um, exchange our own reals. The, you know, now it's called Tomans. It's a, it's a different currency now. Like we're going to get our money and exchange it for um, Tur Turkish liras and then give it to that guy. That guy's going to go back to Turkey and um, buy the tickets for us pretty much so i was like okay cool listen it wasn't the thing is like at, this is like pre-sanctions iran so it was it was not too expensive it was actually pretty reasonable so uh i saved up some money and i i i was like so i think it was like the 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 vip was for for like 80 bucks or something like that and i was like Fuck yeah, let's That's let's do that. Yeah, let's really inexpensive. Yeah, let's let's and it was like it was in the in the Besiktas Stadium in, in Istanbul, so the thousands of people were there. You wanted to get like I was like, I mean, this is my I don't know if I if I get a chance to do this again. So I'm gonna get as close to the stage as possible. Mm -hmm. So we pretty much got tickets for like I mean like 
I think the, like there were like a 500 or a thousand of, of us like right up close to um, the stage. And then behind us and also like sitting around us, there were like, I don't know, tens of thousands of people. So I, I um, got money, I exchanged the money, gave it to this guy, he went back to Turkey and then he got us the tickets. He actually got us the tickets and then he sent it back. So we had the tickets, then we went to, uh, we got plane tickets and whatever, the whole, like it was really surreal. I, didn't, I was working at the times, I was, I mean, I was technically a college student, but I didn't go to classes. As I said, this was like the time that I had one credit left. So uh, we got a tickets and we went and we went and I was teaching English at a time. I had to like cancel a couple of classes and I seriously thought to myself that, um, I don't know, like if I, when I come back in a week or whatever, I don't know if I'll actually have a story to tell these guys. I, I was still like, is this seriously going to happen? Or, or I was like, maybe we'll get there to the stadium and the guy's like, yeah, these tickets are worthless. We don't, I mean, we don't know. Maybe, maybe they're whatever. Mm-hmm. So we went there. And um, so I think it was like we went there, it was supposed to be for a week. So I think th- the third night in or something was the show. So we were, there, we, was, we were there for like a couple of days and then there was the show and then we were there for like a couple more days and then we were supposed to come back. First night I got there, I went to this, there's this in Istanbul, there's this uh, long street called Istiklal Street, which is uh, full of like tattoo shops and uh, like rock and metal bars like lots of live music and then there's no there are no cars so you just like pretty much walk down lots of lots of um just pretty much like cool stuff that people who like this type of music enjoy that's the the whole street is dedicated and also food so you just can get lost in the street like buying records like looking at guitars getting tattoos and also going to bars to listen to live music so i went to this bar and this there was this turkish band they were covering this is my first night like my first experience of a metal show in this bar and man they were awesome they started playing like the guy opened with uh as i am the the dream theater song and he, he like he went through the john petrucci solo like it was nothing and i was like what the fuck like i've never seen like i've never seen this played live and then i've never seen someone so just like unfazed just shredding the hell out of it mm-hmm. So this man was really amazing. I actually got, fell in love with the band. So like every night I would just go there just to see the band. And then a couple of nights in, we actually had, I mean, we know what, we know the, um, the set list and stuff. We know what kind of, what, what songs they were going to play. And uh, also Turkish people love Seek and Destroy. I don't know why, but they were just, I mean, everyone loves Seek and Destroy, but That's it was just song. like, for them, dude, it was like every couple of songs, like when, when you're when you're a live performance at the bar, people would just start chanting Seek and Destroy. So like whatever the set was, they were like playing Pantera or whatever, a Seek and Destroy needs to be in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. At least it was like that when I was like, it was really interesting. And um, so they pretty much played a lot of the, the Metallica songs that we're going to hear the next night, like the night of the, the night before the show. And I was like, oh, this is like, it's going to happen. Now at this point, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is gonna happen. So we went there at like eight in the morning. Like seriously, it was like really way early for a show. But the show was supposed to start at like four. So we got really early, and then we showed the tickets, and the guy was like, "Okay, these are these work." Like so, we, he let us in. We, and it, it was it was a very surreal experience. So we went there, 
waited for a long ass time. Like we were we were outside just like in a line when they were doing the sound check. And there were a lot of people there. There were this was also my my kind of first experience in a very international setting i'd say like there were people like w- when we were headbanging like i, I had like a cu- cu- couple people from the u.s behind me when we were in the marsh pit i'll get to the marsh pit in a, in a second i mean obviously people from turkey a lot of people from iran a lot of the arab gulf nations that uh i mean firstly it was the big four concerts it was really important for anyone anywhere to be there but also at the time, this show was only supposed to play four gigs, and this was the last one. It was like in in Bulgaria, and like it was an Eastern Bloc kind of event. So a lot of people in Istanbul for that from different parts of the world, and like people from like Saudi Arabia that like just historically don't get along well with Iranians. So and and they were there, and we were just like hanging out, having oh wait, messed this up. We were just like. Um, Hanging out, listening to heavy, just the heaviest of musics and stuff, which was really cool. I mean, it was like, kind of gave me this, like, this um, cool feeling about the metal subculture. That's like, it's whatever you do, whatever you listen to at the end, you're just people who like this music. You know, yeah. you, you, you can just hang out and talk about metal music with heavy metal lovers forever. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's always something common that you can find and you can talk about. And uh, so that was really cool. So we got into the stadium, and then uh, there were a couple of just uh, Turkish band that Turkish bands that kind of opened, the kind of like kept us warmed up, I guess. And then started Anthrax was the first one. And I mean, I've, I'm not a big Anthrax. I, I've like I've listened to like a couple albums, and I think I liked like two tracks. Like that's it. I'm not. A, I, I can't get into Anthrax I don't either. Know why. I saw them. I saw them at. Uh, the Metal Alliance show in Philly a couple years ago, and I just it just it didn't do it for me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and so seriously, like the first, like the the first leg of the thing, I think it was like forty five minutes or an hour, and uh, I mean it, it was a metal show, so it was like it was great. But I didn't like I didn't know any of the songs, so I was like cool, you know. I didn't I didn't know I couldn't sing along or I couldn't like jump up at that because I didn't know how to headbang to it. I didn't know the rhythm, so I just kind of like waded through. The anthrax part and then megadeth showed up and uh i mean i've never i don't know if this is a dave mustang thing or it's just bad luck but i've seen i've heard of and also seen a lot of megadeth shows where the sound just doesn't work the way mustang likes it to work okay so this happened on on this specific set too he got mad and he like he punctured one of the amps with his guitar and like threw it down or whatever. So like, what? yeah, and it was like, isn't it that guy? What's his name? Matt Broderick, Chris, whatever. Like the the, the guy who was the uh, who played in Nevermore and then joined Megadeth as like the second guitar. I honestly don't know. So it was like this guy was like he, I think he entered the band like a couple months or a couple of gigs before this specific one so he was just like what the fuck <laughs> and he, i mean like he was he was the shredder or whatever he was he was playing all the all the uh marty friedman's on parts like mm-hmm. all his solos and whatever so and actually you gave me this pick it's funny because mustang was like mad and whatever and was like we have to finish this early you don't want to listen to this crap when there's no good sound or whatever and he took out he had like a wristband or whatever he took it out and he threw it in the crowd. And I did. I seriously wasn't ready for something like that to happen in my first show. And it, like, it literally landed like it touched my nose. 
and it like I could have just grabbed it, but I didn't. It just touched my nose and it fell right in front of me. And like after like two frames, literally like one twelfth of a second, I I was crowd surfing because people were just like going to get that shit. I was just I was like I was pushed or pulled back a little, like crowd surfing or whatever. After this thing hit me, so after that I mean, we were done with Megadeth and. It was Slayer time, so I was fucking crazy. So Slayer came on, and um, I mean, they delivered. The Slayer party show was amazing. I don't remember much, because I was like, they started, I think it was Raining Blood, that I was like, okay, mosh pit, here I come. So I was in the mosh pit for most of it, and um, it was really, really fun. The, the, I mean, it's, it's a Slayer mosh pit, so I guess that's what it's supposed to do, but it was awesome. It was really cool. And, um, I mean, these guys didn't fuck around. That, and it was a Slayer show. And was Dave Lombardo drumming? Yeah. So, Lamar was drumming. And then, I mean. So, so you saw the original lineup. Yeah, the original lineup. God. See, I've seen Slayer three times now. And I've, I haven't, I've only seen them with Tom and Carrie. I haven't seen them. Jeff Hanneman died before I saw mm. that show. And the first time I saw Slayer was right when Dave Lombardo left the band. I was like, oh. you got to be kidding me. Dude, Jeff Hammond, like, I, one of the things I remember from the show is, like, Jeff Hammond walked on stage and he was wearing these boots that were just, like, so weird. And I, I was like, fuck, like, I love his boots. And at the same time, I was thinking, like, I mean, yeah, it's, you're here for the music, though. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was like, just the experience of, oh, fuck, that's Jeff Hanneman. Look at the boots, man. He's awesome. So I... I refocused, I guess, on the music. It was, like, this layer part of it was really, really awesome. Like... I mean, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about a mosh pit. So a lot of people don't know and like it looks very aggressive and whatever from outside. So you don't know what's happening. But when you get in a mosh pit is like it's this transformative, weird experience. Because firstly, I mean, you don't know the, the beautiful thing about it is you don't know what's going to happen. You, you just you're just going to kind of let everything kind of like boil up inside of you and then when you touch someone you kind of leave them with something and they kind of do the same for you you don't know if you're going to fall through the ground. you don't know if someone's going to like walk over you or whatever you just do it and people support you like you, you yeah if you fall down people will pick you back yeah exactly up. like realize about mosh pits like it's not they they're not there for you to get beat up it's there for you to like release this yeah. kind of energy that you have related to the music and it's like this cathartic release of like both aggression and passion and yeah every time i've been in a mosh pit i if someone falls in front of you you push people back yeah, you lift you, them back you up you lift them back up that's i mean that's the that's the beauty of this kind of thing it's like it's a i mean we didn't it's not like before a mosh pit like 2000 guys are like you want to do this you know there's no there's no contract there's no it's just kind of a non-verbal agreement that like we all i mean this type of emotional engagement kind of brings out things in you that might be conceived as violence. Let's all deal with this together without anyone getting hurt while we're listening to something that we love. I think that's a great... Oh, yeah. That's like a, that's an achievement in terms of human understanding. You know what I mean? Because... Well, it's also pretty crazy. You're saying like Saudi Arabians and Iranians because yeah. Iran is, is Shia Islam, yeah. right? And Saudi Arabia is Sunni, yeah. correct? And they don't mix... Absolutely not. But you're in Turkey, and it doesn't matter because you're seeing Slayer and Metallica. Like, yeah, that's that's, the thing. that's beautiful. That's that the <laughs> like you have. So I'm, I mean, like the the night before the show in the uh, the bar, I think it was called Do Rock or something like that. 
the bar that I went to in Istanbul the night before the show. So like we were headbanging guys from Iran, from like the Philippines, from the US, from Saudi Arabia, from like Russia, whatever European countries and stuff. They were all pretty much headbanging to the to the same thing, same energy. You know what I mean? It's and I think that's beautiful. That's really awesome. And, you, and that's what I that's what I mean when when I say it's I consider it it's 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 a big deal that you don't have to talk to these guys you don't have to set any boundaries or any guidelines you just understand that like there are people who want to have fun like me and it's not it's i mean nothing about a heavy metal show is conventional human behavior right yeah. you know what i mean it's seriously like what for what we think is conventional absolutely so so i i really dig it that there are many people who don't believe in that in you know in that whatever conventional way of doing things, but they don't have to talk to each other and figure out what other alternative there is. They're just, I mean, yeah, a mosh pit. Just get in a mosh pit, you, you walk out a different person, and, like, safe, absolutely yeah. safe, no no harm done, nothing. Did I tell you about uh, when I saw Black Sabbath? No. So I saw Black Sabbath at Madison Square Garden. Um, I guess it was. That's already a cool story. Yeah, I know. You're happy. <laughs> I mean, I, I spent way too much money, but I was like, I can justify this because it was it's their farewell tour. It's the end tour, and I go. So I'm at Madison Square Garden, where like the cheapest beer is like seven dollars. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me! <laughs> I, mean, I, I took the train up from Philly, the whole thing, and I'm sitting next to this like South American guy, uh, and the entire show, like I was singing along to every song. He's singing along to every song, and at the end of the show, after they played Paranoid. For their uh, for their encore song, the guy just like taps me on the shoulder, gives me a hug, and says, "This was awesome," and then walks Dude, away. Awesome. I didn't say a single word to him, but he just hugged me and said, "This was awesome." And like, so like I shared a moment with this complete stranger who just loves Black Sabbath as much as I do. Yeah, and that's exactly what you're talking about. It's like Dude, the same. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, I remember like Metallica came on, and then they I think they opened with Creeping Death, which I mean, like I I loved all the pieces that they played that night. But I specifically remember Creeping Death because it was the opener. And this, so it, this was the period of time where the, in the Metallica Life setlist Creeping Death was the opener. Like, not, not Black and not Master, nothing. And, like, I didn't know if there was gonna, they were going to play Black and or not because it wasn't on the setlist. And Black and is one of my all-time favorite songs. So in the middle of the thing, they were wrapping up another song. And then suddenly I heard, like... Oh fuck! It's gonna be blackened, man. Like, I mean, James started playing the riff. I was like, "Fuck!" I jumped up so high and like screamed out loud or whatever that like even the couple like metalheads like right by me were like, "What the fuck? <laughs> what are you doing, man?" But like that that moment when they started playing blackened, I felt like like all these people around me kind of got this energy that I just released. And we went nuts. It was like, and it was, I mean, Blacken is like, I mean, by this point, it's like 11 something at night. We've been there for like more than 12 hours. And then it's not just, I mean, like, it's not like, it's, it's heavy metal music. So it's like, it's physically demanding. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like yeah. you're doing stuff while you're listening to the music. But you hear that song, suddenly you have new energy. Dude, like I had like, I was like, this is just, I'm just starting my day. That's, that's how, how much energy I had. And it was, it was a really awesome experience because we had like, I pretty much headbanged to like every second of that song. Just like let it completely take me away from where I was. And it was awesome. It was a really cool experience. I mean, the whole the whole Metallica part was really good. I remember like at, at some point I was thinking that like, man, 
some point these guys are gonna die. And I'd like, <laughs> seriously, I was like, I think it was one or something. It was like one of the one of the track fours, like Metallica, like one of the more emotional ones. So at some point, these guys are gonna die. What the fuck? And like, I, I had this kind of like live in the moment kind of you know it, it's just like just imagine like in the course of like five seconds i start thinking about this and i'm like well you're here now let's just take it in and right. you know what i mean all these like weird conversations that you have like like these little regulations you make to yourself and in, in important moments and that was seriously one, one of really important moments in my life just experiencing this kind of you know and you can get to that point when you're listening to that kind of music where you have like that pure experience where you're not even thinking about it. You're just doing it. Mm. Oh, my God. It's amazing. So w- was that your first time out of Iran? That was technically no. I mean, like I'd already like I'm we had traveled to Turkey. Like, I mean, Turkey is a very it's very it's a neighboring country. So it's it's not too far. But uh, I don't remember those trips. I was like five or okay. I think I went there when I was two and when I was like technically like the first time that I like I consciously traveled outside the country was the big four. That's, yeah, dude. it was weird. So so you so you get back to Tehran yeah. and you've, you've probably at this point are like it's never going to be this amazing ever again. <laughs> yeah, um, I was it was surreal, like especially like the first few months. It's not just about like. I mean, I'm not trying to uh, kind of make too much out of it. It was like, at the end of it, it was a show that I went to. But it kind of showed me that, like, this, on a personal level, whatever I want to do, or whatever I have set my eyes on, whatever dream I have, is something that can possibly happen. Just because of that really, that you know, that initial stupid small dream of like seeing these bands live or doing something like that. Just because it was like, it was an entirely positive experience. Like, so a lot of things happened for me in this, like leaving the country for the first time, saving up enough money to be able to, you know, go to a foreign country or whatever. Go to a show that was technically, there was like everything was done in my world to keep me from going to this kind of show. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, so all in all, it was, it was a very, um, kind of, it made me more confident about who I was and what I wanted to do. And so when I got back, I immediately started, not, not immediately, but like, I don't know, a couple of weeks into our return, I started writing for my first film and, um, kind of went that route until now. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you, Slayer. Metallica, Megadeth, <laughs> and Anthrax. Yeah, thank you, Big Four. That's, so that that's pretty wild because so that showed you that it wasn't impossible. You could chase a dream yeah. if something seemed impossible. It just meant that you had to fight for it and kind of just pretty go much. for it. Yeah, I mean, for, uh, honestly, like I mean, wh- when you think about yourself, I think every every metalhead when when you think about think, think back at your life, there's a moment where you chose this music or this music, this type of music starts speaking to you because you were a rebel. Because like there were things, you know, like when you think about even the structure of this type of music or how you enjoy it is very, very different philosophically and aesthetically different from what people usually use music for. Like if you, if I tell someone, which I do and people don't believe me, like I am very tense. I'm going to listen to like Sacrament for an hour and it's going to calm me down. People are like, what? You crazy? That's the... It's it's hard to describe that to people. Yeah, 
I, it was, I was working this one time uh, in in DC. We were opening a restaurant, uh, and they they asked me if I would go help open this restaurant because I was part of the company and I knew the mm. culture of the company, whatever. So we had to. We were living in Arlington. I think it was Arlington. I had to take a train, and it was like an hour long train ride mm. into DC or something like that. And we were working twelve hour days, and then an hour train ride back. So I mean, we were not sleeping. Uh, it was miserable. Opening a restaurant is just the worst. Like I, I will never do it again. Like I'll I'll jump in like a year after it's open, but opening restaurants <laughs> d- d- ridiculous. But we'd get in the car and like there was like five of us servers or mm. maybe four of us. And uh, I remember putting on putting on my headphones and, and before I got on the train every day, I listened to Devil Driver and and Slayer and you you could hear the music yeah. outside my headphones. I was blasting it so loud. And uh, my friend Shafia said, Robert, how do you stay so calm when you listen to that music? And I'm like, this is how I maintain my yeah, calm. This, like, is, this like, is it. Like, this if I is wasn't my listening to this, fix, I, I would be way worse on the floor at this restaurant. If you could. And no, I, I know it's it's funny because my, like I, I knew about Lamb of God. I knew about Slayer, like from skateboarding and stuff like that. Mm. But like I had this kind of, I don't want to share too much, but I had this kind of rough period in my early mm. 20s where I felt really powerless and like really mm. weak and really miserable yeah, all the time. And I went to, I started listening to the Misfits again and I started like doing push-ups and sit-ups and and then I heard the Danzig was playing in Jersey and I got my shift covered and I bought the ticket and I drove out to Jersey before I had GPS. So I got <laughs> completely lost. But uh, we show up at this, at this uh, venue in the middle of nowhere and Danzig started with the song he wrote for Johnny Cash called 13. He comes out and he goes like, this is the song I wrote for the late, great Johnny Cash. And the first, like that song is so raw. It's in the, I think it's the first song in The Hangover, that movie, oddly enough. It's just like, dern, dern, Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but I remember sitting in the crowd in Jersey and like everyone's dressed in black, you know, it's, 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 mm. a, it's a metal show. And the first downstroke of the guitar i felt this unbelievable sense of power and possibility and suddenly i was like oh this is this can be mine if i just work hard enough and i am focused and i i attack problems head on and it completely changed my perspective on things i was like this and it became a source of energy for me and ever since then i've been listening to metal because like it gets me in a zone where it's not destructive but it's an aggressive, positive energy. Yeah, absolutely. So I know exactly when you're talking about going to see the Big Four. Like I had a similar experience with Danzig. It was a much smaller venue, of course, <laughs> but but it was just like after that, there was no looking back. It was like okay, yeah, I can I can no do it. And, and it's it's music. It's it's just yeah. It's but that's how powerful that kind of stuff. That's how powerful art can be. Absolutely. I was I was actually just thinking that like we had, we had the seminar on um, revolutionary art. And uh, or was it was something like along those lines. And then someone was talking about how like how there's this postmodern view of art that is art is whatever violates your personal inner thoughts. It literally used the word violate because it's it's a very, very kind of I mean, it's a very violent and very aggressive type of word. Yeah. And. When you, when you think about when I think about I'm like we just talked about like the good art that changed my life when you think about it that's pretty that's it like that's what they did that, that I kind of let something 
inside and then that thing kind of changed the way i was thinking i was looking at the world and of course it's not I mean like i'm not saying that one film or one piece of music changed or can change anyone's life it's there's always a process but there's always a moment when you recognize that there's a shift in you and whatever piece that you're listening to you're experiencing at that time kind of gets associated with that you know inner process but it's i think it's i mean I've been saying this for all my life. Metal music is not, it's not necessarily about one thing or the other. The way I think about it, or at least where I was in my life, for many years, I just wanted to be, I just didn't want to be what I was supposed to be. And I, 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 I didn't know how to explore that. I just didn't want to be who I was determined to be, like whatever path was in front of myself. I wanted to discover it for myself. I wanted to make my own decisions. I want to have some agency in my own mm-hmm. life so I can um, kind of hold myself accountable so I can dream. You know what I mean? So, so 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 everything starts to make sense. So for years, listening to Mill Music or doing all the things that I did, which is, you know, I think like a lot of people who get into this kind of music do. Not to say, I'm not talking about destruction or vandalism or whatever. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just talking about... When you make a choice in life that leads you to listening to type of music that no one in the world thinks is healthy, right. it's, it shows that you're obviously thinking differently and you make other choices in your life, which you know many people might not agree with, like leaving an engineering path to go do art, you know, something like that. So after going to that show, I kind of realized that like this. Um, all this rebellion and all this energy and all this anger. And I was also in a terrible place in my life when like 18, 19 to like 22, 23, tough years. So for me, it was kind of like this, this, whole, this whole rebellion or whatever can actually lead to some change, can actually lead to, you know, being rebellious is not the only, you know, uh, kind of manifestation of feeling rebellious, you know? Well, it's, it's also not rebellion for rebellion's sake. Ab- that's what I wanted to say, actually. You, you, your rebellion is, is the starting point to do something positive or something constructive or to build something. Yeah. But you have to, like, shift course. You have to break free of what has been set in front of you in order to actually have something new so you're not really falling in line and the other thing about like you were saying like the the it's a process you know like you have a you might have a moment of realization but something was building to it it's like it's like a puzzle piece like part of you probably knew what you had to do absolutely but then seeing that show like was a puzzle piece dropping into place that made it real like it wasn't real until you had that experience that's not, I mean, yeah, that's it. That's it. You, 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 for me, the, the kind of the, um, when I boiled it down to the core experience of going to this show was that I like this kind of music and these people, no one else does. But if, if I kind of put it on my own self to get myself there, to, to enjoy it by myself, you know, it, it was kind of like a, a moment to show me, like, as an individual, I got your back, man. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, you mm. want to go to that show, you want to enjoy that, whatever band, I will make this happen for you. Like, this is what I told myself. Which, based on our culture, based on whatever, like, what, however my life kind of went along at least up until that point i didn't have that kind of a feeling i always thought that there's like there there are limits 
to very strict limits to what you can do in your life, to how close you can get yourself to what you actually want. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I was like, no, I mean, there's actually not. I mean, worst case scenario, you just like, if you really want to go see the big four and you don't have money, you just run or, I don't know, get on a bus or, you know, I kind of realized that like now that you know what, what an experience of this magnitude feels like, it doesn't really matter how you get yourself to the point of experiencing it. It's just important to experience it, just right. to put yourself out there. So uh, I got back and I was like, well, I mean, now I want to make films. That's that's awesome. Yeah. And then you made it to the States. Yeah. Did, that you, was did a, you get in on your first ass. application? Uh, I applied to five schools i think i think i applied to five schools and i got into three or okay. yeah i got into three i applied to fsu ut at austin utah i think university of wisconsin and ou i think it was like that i i know i didn't get to to uh i'm not sure i i know i get, got into the university of texas at austin i really loved that school too but it was like a financial thing. I couldn't go. And then OU was my, the last school that I applied for. I didn't even know this program existed. I actually knew of the festival. Really? Before I knew of the university. Okay. So I um, I applied and after. So OU was pretty much my last, like the the uh, the last email that I got, like in, in, in this whole process of decision making, where do I want to go or whatever. OU was the last piece. And it was like, tuition waiver and stipend and whatever. I was like, okay. And, and, def- and this is something that we we're talking about before the show is OU lets you retain ownership yeah. of your work, which is huge. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, we have to thank uh, Dr. Thomas for that because that, that like not a lot of places let you do that. And what's really cool, and I want to talk about this. I, mean, I don't know how much time you have. Sure. Are you, uh, are you in a rush? Not really. I got like... I don't know, half hour, 45 Okay, all right. Yeah. I really want to talk about departure because... Sure. Um, so, thesis year, you decide to do a feature film yeah. with your classmates, Dusty Jenkins, Sami Badir, and uh, Daniel Aguera, yes, right? that's correct. So, but the, the interesting thing about this project, when I first heard about it, was, okay, we're going to have four writers... And four directors for a feature film, and I thought, hey, get the fuck out of here. That's not good. There's no yeah. way you're going to make that work. And then it started becoming a reality. And then I'd see you guys, and Chichap would be like, "Oh yeah, you know, we have a, a draft of the script." And I'm like, "Really? Oh, okay." And like a month <laughs> later, it's like, "Yeah, you know, we're, we're working on um, getting some uh, some grant money." I'm like, "I'm like, oh, oh, it's, it's happening." They're like, "Yeah," and Ryko, you know, yeah. uh, eminent scholar in film, Ryko Grilich is 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 helping us get it together. And I'm like, I'm like. Oh, they're they're doing it. And this, you know, this is my first year in the program. I'm thinking like, there's no fucking way they're gonna pull this off. And then, you know, I'm having lunch one day talking to David Claude Giovanni, and you came up and we're like, hey, you want to like be a grip on the film? And I was like, it's that serious? I was like, I was like, wait, it's actually you're actually getting the crew together? And then I was like, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm flattered. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but sure, yeah, let's let's do it. And being uh, getting the opportunity and i want to thank you personally for that opportunity because thank you for helping us well i mean just getting to work on a feature film your first year in film school and getting to getting to work with with union talent with a dp from los angeles who knows Mm. the standards and everything and having i mean it was a pretty rough schedule obviously (laughs) 
But I mean, like getting that experience of working on a feature film, like not a lot of people can say that while they're in film school that they worked on a feature. So, I mean, on my end, you know, <laughs> it, it was just, it was really cool. And now like I have a whole nother level of confidence going into that's projects awesome. just because of the experience I got working that's on really that cool. film. That's, so thanks man. I didn't, I mean, hearing this really, really makes me happy, honestly, because, um, I mean, I, I we haven't talked about the actual project, but I, I just I'm just gonna say this for for me, it was really important to for the, for this whole process not to be literally just free labor. I really wanted. I mean, my kind of idea was for everyone to gain something from the from the experience because all of us were were gaining experience. Like, not only directing, not only I hadn't directed a, or written a feature script or directed a feature film. It was I, I hadn't worked this closely with anyone in my life before. Like really? for yeah, for pretty much for like a year and a half. I mean, like we're still doing it because this, the film is not out yet. But um, I was a very kind of a lone wolf mentality. I had a couple of really good friends in Iran who were my friends from like when I'm like my best friend. We've been friends for like 20 something years. So working with him when I wrote music or when I was like bouncing, like I, I was, uh, I would like go to him when I would when I want to just like bounce some ideas off of someone. But the trust that I had in him was because we were friends for like 20 something years. It wasn't necessarily um, kind of a professional, you know, uh, relationship per se. So it was really transformative, literally, just just to be able to conduct yourself in a way that is not disruptive to three other people while they work, they work with you mm-hmm. on set. So it was a learning experience for everyone, and I'm really, I'm really, it makes me happy to hear that it was, you know, it wasn't a wash for. Well, I mean, another thing I, mean, I have to clarify a little bit because it the, during the experience, it was really, it was really difficult. I mean, yeah. I, I had a, I had a, I had a death in the family. You know, there was a lot of yeah. extenuating things that were really difficult for me. But looking when I finally got a little bit of space from the production, like a month after the production wrapped, I was like, man, I'm really glad I did that. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad I did that. And then like I went on IMDb and like my name, I have like an mm. IMDb credit. I was like, oh, that's, that, I never thought that would happen. That's pretty freaking <laughs> yeah, cool. cool. Yeah. So this whole thing was shot in and around Athens, Ohio. Cool. And um, I mean, you're in post production right now. How's that going? It's going well. We have um, we have our second cut now. So we had our our first assembly was done about a month ago. Like where we the story is made up of four. You want to just talk about like basically what the story is about for sure. the audience? Sure. I mean, so this the story of the film is. I mean, the title is going to change. Departure was just a working title. We're gonna we're gonna change the title when we test screen it just to see how the audience will react to the title of the film. But uh, the story is pretty much uh, the story of a family in one day where there's a tragedy in the family. So y- you kind of witness this, this story from four different angles. You, you go through the story with the father of the family, and then you go through the story with the daughter of the family, and this goes on and uh, until the end. And each of these segments kind of tell you uh, gives you a you know gives you a different perspective into how this family operates and why they are where they are, and in the end the last story is the story of the actual tragedy that we think has happened and we see how that unfolds and what happens after actually. So it's uh, in terms of structure it's um, 
it's an interesting structure. It's like it's it's all our pretty much our whole attempt was to create this experience that's kind of more than a regular feature film watching experience. So using these four different characters, we wanted to kind of get into more of the the specific details of these people's lives than you actually have time to do in a feature film. But because we had this four you know, opportunities to look at the story, we were able to get kind of... Um, get to some some interesting aspects of these people's lives that you usually don't see in a feature film. So for us, it was important for the film to kind of make sense as four pieces, not just we're four people, so we're going to make it four different pieces. So you and the other um, writers all wrote your own chunk? No, like- we actually... So we wrote we wrote the, the whole thing together. That's So when we started it, when... Let me actually tell you how we started because it's an interesting story. I when I got here, like my first year, I was really hell bent on making a feature. And I remember I talked to Steve one day, and he unofficially told me that like the school has had a terrible experience with someone having the ambition to make a feature film. They didn't have the proper funding and they didn't do it well and just never finished. That student left the school and that thesis film never got done. Technically, that person never graduated. So in my first year, I didn't even know, I, I hadn't even touched like a six, 16 millimeter film stock or whatever. I, it was just like, I didn't know anything. I, you know, got introduced to the concept of no feature film in a film school, in a film program. And I was re- pretty bummed about that. Like, I remember like my first week or second week, I went to Rafal with my, still as my advisor. And I was like, I was really mad. I was like, what? Like... I'm I'm really I really want to do this. I thought this was like this was a platform for me to like do big big stuff and whatever. And he was like, I mean, we'll get there. You just you have to learn too. You know what I mean? You you have to like you have to mess up and learn from your mistakes. I was like I was really ready to go from the beginning. So as I went through through the program first year and second year, I kind of realized. I mean, they're right. It's not. And I I got to know these guys, the three other guys that you talked about. I got to know them and their work and we started kind of like thinking about film together because we were put in the same groups in our first year and we we became friends. So for us, the process of talking about thinking about film was just, you know, hanging out pretty much. And so I got to, I learned much more about myself and about the process of filmmaking and stuff. It kind of moved away from the idea of a feature because I realized like if you want to make a 10 minute piece, you're you have to, you know, do so much and it's so such a difficult process that it's not possible to make make a feature and up until the end of our second year we went to this film analysis class with Raiko and uh, Raiko was really interesting he was like he he said that I don't believe in short films a short format I think is uh, good when you want to learn something but uh, this is a master's program and you're technically should know what you need to know. You just need you. You're here to kind of hone your skills and like go to the next level, not just experiment with the basic stuff. And uh, he said that like I've had master classes before, but where students have kind of collaborated on making a longer format film, and we're like, ooh. And then the, I think Dusty was like, I think it was Dusty who asked them like, would you consider something like? Because we'd already talked about it a lot. We just it was just a dream, pretty much. It was just. Um, uh, a cool idea to have for a thesis project. And then Dusty was like, what would you consider? Like we're six, I think we were like six or eight, we were eight people in the class. Like what What about us? Like, 
do you think you can work with us? And then Raiko was like, I, I've, have, I've had some bad experiences, like people who don't care enough. And I'm a very straightforward guy. And I'm like, I mean, Raiko is one of the greatest Eastern European filmmakers of all time. So yeah, uh, really briefly, like Raiko just won the Montreal Film Festival mm-hmm. Golden. What's the actual award? Uh, what was it? I don't know. I can Google it actually. I can't remember. But yeah, it's like it's the the number one yeah top award of that. And and he's made a bunch of films. He's very well respected. In yeah, the- he's been to Berlin. He's been to to Cannes Film Festival. He's been to. Um, he's worked with some of the most amazing like and kind of important directors not not just you know it's, i'm not just talking about revenue and films that make money filmmakers who are thinkers especially mm-hmm. european filmmakers who kind of change the way we watch films and um so he looks at you he tells you this and then you you take that as a challenge yeah obviously <laughs> so he said so he was really kind of reluctant because I assume I mean I've, we've never talked about this that much, but I think he he's had some bad experiences or some experiences of like students who are who think about film in film school in a very film schooly way, which is like show me how to do this. But the way Raiko does it, or I mean, you know this, the way like proper film education is done is you just you're left alone in an environment with proper guidance and equipment and you just do your own thing. You have to figure it out by yourself. And Raiko, I mean, he's obviously very against this process of like, I'm going to force feed you the idea the to how to make a film where I'm, I want to influence the kind of film that you want to make. So we had to kind of show him that we were like on a certain level, like our understanding of what I wanted to do was not juvenile or, mm-hmm. you know, stupid pretty much so at the end of that class he was like let's you know uh if you guys are serious about this we have to start working right now this is like whatever like in our second year i think this is probably like march or april or something so we're not even in our third year we're not done with our second year yet like we're we're still shooting pretty much for our second year films and we start talking. So there are eight people in the class. Eventually, six of us decide to go for this. We start talking. We kind of divvy it up. Like, these people are directors. These people are writers. These uh, people are doing cinematography and stuff like that. So we start at six at the end of our second year. Six people from my class. And by the end of the summer, we were five. And then by the end of the first semester in our third year, we were four. So it was just the four of us left. And I'm not going to get into, like, what how that's that stuff happened but um eventually like i mean people start to to realize that like okay do i really want to do this or was it just a interesting idea that fun that was, to talk about yeah but was, maybe it, not was, it, was to. it just fun to talk about and um so we started i mean like so we had we were lucky actually from the beginning the six people that were the four of us worked to had worked together for a long time but the other two people that we had in class were really talented people so starting off there was something we had something to offer there was something to learn from this at least for me there was there there was a there was a very interesting process going on from day one that kind of kept me in because i i realized these people are are worthy of my time they're really they're talented people they they know a lot so just hanging out with them thinking about this is going to teach me a lot and also i mean i talked about how i was all four of us were kind of crazy about making a feature film from the beginning so this was also an opportunity to kind of do that so we just jumped on board 
And so we started with the pitch and ideas. I had, we were actually talking to the guys a couple of days ago that like the first time we talked to Reich about our ideas, he was just like, I, I had this idea for my thesis film that I was nur- like nurturing for two years. And I thought it was an amazing idea. And I started talking, like I said the first three words of my pitch and Reiko was like, that's too abstract. That's not going to work. Like, leave it outside. That's not going to help us. So like he, so he kind of like, we, we had to start from scratch. No, like, no idea was, none of the ideas that we had were kind of potent enough for a, a project of this magnitude. At the same time we were talking to, I was, I mean, obviously I, I asked to, I talked to a lot of professors, a lot of my peers. And there was no one who thought this was a good idea. Everyone told me that, like, I mean, you're going to share credit with three other people and you're not going to get it made. I mean, like, even if you just about your if you just talk about a thesis short, like a 10 minute short, it's impossible to know if it actually is going to turn out the way you want it, let alone a feature with four other, with six at the time, six other people. What the fuck are you thinking? And whatever. But um, I mean, as I said, like, for me, it's. If there's no challenge, then why why are you doing it? If if there's no if there's no discovery, if 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 it's not a revolution, if it's not going to change the way you or p- other people think about something, then why do it in the first place? So making this work became our goal. We started like I I went back home over the summer. So we went back to Turkey. You know, guys traveled around, but like we started skyping, pitching ideas, and that was a really awkward process because like for three, four, even for for longer, for like five months, we were just trying to figure out what we can do with these four guys. At the same time, people were like, "Did you give up already? Come on, like, think about something that's, you know, that's not a waste of time. Think about a f- like." A lot of people told me that, like, maybe you should also think about an idea for a short. So when this falls through, you can switch back to your short and graduate at least. But uh, it was just interesting. It was just a really crazy, interesting idea. So we just kept going. And um, over the summer, we came up with some ideas, some story ideas. We actually have them on a drive right now. Sometimes we go look at it and laugh because it was like it was crazy. It was dude. It's like the ideas that we had are the final project that we will have in a few weeks is couldn't be more different than the ideas that we started with. And um, in the beginning, actually, the idea was we wanted to make four vignettes, just four independent pieces that would fit together thematically in a longer piece. As we started doing it, we realized, I mean, we had a lot of discussions about this and we came to this conclusion that it's not going to work if it's not driven by a unified, you know, uh, idea, it's not going to work as a film. So now at this point, we start to write, all four of us start to write the whole thing together. So there's no, even when we directed, it was pretty much the same way. So there's no, uh, no one can kind of claim individual credit for any of the pieces of the film, not the stories, not the editing, not the directing, none of it. It was pretty much done um uh together like all of it we did it together so i'm trying to think about the timeline i think we started writing like the first draft that we had was like somewhere like probably around this time last year and Ryko came back to town and we started pitching the ideas and eventually it took us like i mean it took us until like the last draft of the script was sent out like halfway through the shoot. I don't know if you remember that. 
when we were going to shoot yes and segment like the the actually the last week was when dusty sent out the last draft that we had. and i remember because like us on the crew were like it's gonna work out is it gonna work it's gonna yeah happen. it was really dude it was the whole this whole process was an amazing process i mean i learned so much i not only did i learn so much about the process of filmmaking i learned so many things that i didn't know anything about i just like st- i went to places that i never thought i would go emotionally mentally to to get this film ready and like working with Raiko for you know a year and a half was a great experience just working with a filmmaker who's um a no-nonsense guy who's done it and i mean Raiko doesn't like force you to do something if you don't like it he just tells you pretty much like if i was doing this this is how I would approach this. And a guy who has like 40 something years of experience in filmmaking in grade A high class, high art filmmaking. It's it's amazing. It's like, it's unlike anything pretty much. And um, that really helped us along. And then the three other guys are constantly, you know, uh, you have to be on top of your game all the time because there are three other guys who are going to call you bullshit if you're not present in a meeting if mm-hmm. you're not putting in the work or whatever and uh, so that was really interesting and also just the process of you know uh i know this is a this is a bit like uh childish or whatever but i always have this like when something is this challenging something is thought to be impossible to do i just get a kick out of just doing it just you know um it makes it worth my while just mm-hmm. just to spend time on this just because it it hasn't been done because i i firmly believe in that just in my whole perception of the universe that whatever can happen will happen so if there's something hasn't happened why shouldn't i be the person who initiates this or who who gets it done because it's going to happen yeah it, it's going to happen sometime and the idea of like four people kind of putting all the effort and money and whatever they have together to make a film to me was a very interesting idea i did a you know, people told me it was stupid, but I was like, yeah, I mean, it could work out. It was really cool watching how different your your directorial styles were. Yeah. <laughs> like, seriously, because like, cause you, had a, you, you were like very direct about things, and I could tell like if something wasn't working, you would like stop for like three minutes, mm. and then you'd come back with a completely different angle, and if that didn't work, you would stop and come back with a different angle. But then like watching Sami direct... He would just like think about things and then very calmly go up and like I could never tell what he was saying to the actors. He would just like very calmly describe things in his yeah. in his very deep voice. Yeah. <laughs> and then like and, and Dusty was completely different and Daniel would always be like I could see the gears turning in his hand in mm. his head and then he would he would just like throw something out. Like so you all had very different like your pace was different, yeah. your style was different, and it, it was it was it was i mean the problem with being a grip is that i wasn't close enough to the camera to actually hear everything that was going on but uh, at the same time like taking cinematography class now if i hadn't gotten to work that closely with john valletta mm. now everything makes sense now because at first it was like okay That's really cool i've done all the studying i i've written down all the notes i've done the research but it didn't make sense until i actually did it on set yeah and now that i've done it on set when Steve says something in cinematography, I'm like, oh yeah, I did I did that last summer. Yeah. No big deal. That's really cool. That's really cool. Like I, I went to when I took cinematography, I was like the summer the summer after our first year, I went back home. I actually went back home to get married that summer. And then the uh, my friends who didn't go back home, they in Athens they worked on uh, we had a professor Annie Howell in our first year, who's a really amazing filmmaker, a great film teacher. 
She's in New York now. She was shooting her feature in Athens. Was it a Claire? Claire, Claire in Motion, which is a, is a great film. It's now on Canopy, and um, it had a theatrical release. It was it was a really cool, huge project that that they did in Athens. And all these people worked on set. My my class, they all worked on set, and I, I didn't. I was I want I was getting married and whatever. So. When I when I took cinematography, I felt that I I mean I felt the opposite of what you were saying because I mean like I I was I had like I work on enough sets and whatever to have a sense of what I was doing, but in terms of just the, just the um, the physical and mechanical work of like knowing you know how, finding your way around gear and like setting it up in a way that's efficient and fast and you know safe. I yeah, was yeah. It, it took me some time. It <laughs> took me some time, and the people who worked on set, people who would like closely work with the other DP that they had for, for Annie's film, they were you know way ahead of me. I'm glad that you know it, uh, the shoot kind of was fruitful. I can't wait to see it. When can I see? A, you're gonna you're gonna screen a cut for the film students. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> I hope, dude. It, no pressure. Scheduling, no pressure. Scheduling this. No, actually, like this is this has been like for the past few days. This has been on my mind a lot because um, we got to figure out a schedule where like the screening room is empty and people there are enough people that uh, they can watch the film and like answer like which we're, get it. We have a questionnaire to give people good, to answer good. and stuff like that. that yeah. yeah. So uh, hopefully, I hope we can do it ne- this week because we're kind of getting close to our uh, deadlines to get the you know to have a picture lock and be able to move on with sound and color and stuff like that okay yeah man i can't wait yeah i, I can't, can't wait dude i can't i can't wait for people to see it and it's gonna be it's it's different like it's not what people expect it to be actually which i really dig i i think that's really cool like even people who worked on set it, it's um I, let me put it this way like most of our work like the the if you consider like the 16 or 15 or whatever months that it took us to get this project from Ryko saying let's let's do something crazy to the point where we we're like you know the last shot or whatever mm-hmm. most of our work went into making this film make sense as these four separate you know segments so we spent a lot of time like planting things in the script that would make sense in other parts of the story, but also don't get in the way of you actually, you know, experiencing the film. And it was tough to do because, like, I mean, there's a reason why narrative films are done, you know, uh, in a very linear, chronologically correct way because that's how you that's how you your brain wants to understand the story. That's mm-hmm. how uh, that's how delivering plot points is more is most efficient if you do it like if you deliver the information at the exact right time for the audience so that they, they don't realize they're getting new piece of information and just move along with your story so we had to kind of redefine how because i mean you can't just say like yeah i mean you'll you'll learn about this later and just keep watching for an hour we'll tell you what this is about that's not going to work in 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 a film like this so we had to kind of redefine the, the process of information delivery to the audience as they're watching the film and uh, that's why even for people who were on set shooting the film, it's it's going to be a weird experience watching it because when you were shooting it, like the order of the scenes and everything was very different from the way it's set up in the story. So like the right. journey, there's a, I don't know. I mean, like that's the reason I'm really eager to show it to someone is for us to actually see if this works, if this whole like 
journey that we have devised for the audience to go through to see if that works or not. I can't wait, dude. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so if, um, if our listeners want to follow you on like social media or the film, is there anything they should look up? Yeah, so there's um, we have a, we have a website called BenjaminPictures.com, which is uh, it's like the little little production thing that the four of us have together. So there's like you know trailers of our films, like news and stuff, uh, screenings, whatever future project that we're dealing with is on there. We have there's a Instagram account called Departure of the Film, which is all the pictures and cool updates and stuff on this specific film itself so like that website is also for whatever other project mm-hmm. that we're doing okay yeah cool anything else you'd like to add Shaw? uh no man i talked for like five hours straight <laughs> <laughs> no th- i'm really glad you did this i've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a long time thanks so. a lot thanks dude i'm I, I mean i really i really love this kind of thing and i wanted to wanted us to hang out and talk about this kind of thing and we're going to talk about it like at a private setting anyway so it's awesome to be able to do it this way yeah yeah and we got i mean you have i've heard 20 times as many stories that (laughs) didn't get mentioned on this podcast that we'll have to uh, revisit it at another time. yeah (laughs) absolutely definitely all right cool awesome thanks cool thanks man thanks a lot thanks everybody for tuning in that was shah shafiani be sure to check out BenjaminPictures.com to see some more work from Shaw and the rest of the directing team of which he is a part. Also follow Departure the Film on Instagram if you want to see some updates on the progress of that feature. Next time on the podcast, we have Bilal Sami, a filmmaker from Pakistan who recently had a film premiere that he wrote, a feature film. Uh, another great discussion. So I look forward to sharing that with you all. Until next time, leave a review, give us a good rating on iTunes, and tell your friends, and we'll see you next time.